Pastor Anna hit me up about a week ago and said, I, want, I need you to preach this Sunday. So I'm going to open today with a warning. This, this is going to go all over the place, and I don't know where it's going to go. Uh, so take heart. We'll get through it. A lot's happened here in the past few months, uh, here with me in my prayer life. How many of you noticed what happened up here last Sunday? Well, you were here. You, Kurt was up here. D did any of you notice the fact that the Spirit actually fell up here, or were you all distracted by the static? And, and do you know that the enemy will just use anything that he can to distract you from worshiping God? Now, I could feel it up here. Jesse was having a hard time holding it together. She was starting to cry. Half of us couldn't sing. I was having trouble playing. The Spirit showed up on the platform. And, and many of us have been waiting a long time for that. I mean, it's been a while since I've, I've had that happen. Now, just to warn Kurt, I've been in services where the entire worship team couldn't do a thing because the Spirit was so heavy. But, uh, boy, I just, I look forward to that keeping on, keep on happening. That was, that was just glorious. All right, let's dig in here. What an interesting sermon title, right? Stuck in Babylon. It's so interesting that poor Brad had problems with the graphic, and, and that's what he came up with. I think it's great. I don't know how he feels about it, but that's pretty good. Um, I've been praying the last couple months that the Lord shows me something new. And this is what he showed me. And right now, I think a lot of us are stuck in Babylon. We're, we're looking and we're waiting for something to happen. And maybe we're looking in the wrong direction and nothing seems to be happening. At least nothing good. How many of you get the uh, Our Daily Bread? I know Marlene does. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read a little story from it. And forgive me for those of you who already heard it or read it. Um, but I think it's appropriate when the writer's daughter received a pair of pet crabs, you know those little uh, sand crabs, what do they call them? Um, hermit crabs, yeah. Uh, as a gift, she filled the glass tank with sand and, you know, so they could climb around and dig and everything. She supplied water, protein, vegetable scraps for their dining pleasure, and they seemed happy. So everybody was shocked when they disappeared one day. They searched everywhere. And finally, they did a little research, thank you, Google, uh, and found out that they were likely buried under the sand, and they'd be buried under the sand for about two months. They were molting. And two months passed, and then another month passed, and they began to worry that they died. And the longer they waited, the more impatient they became. And finally, they saw signs of life, and the crabs emerged from the sand. Do you think that when Israel, well, Judah actually, was stuck in Babylon, they doubted that God's prophecy for them would be fulfilled? And they lived as exiles. Did they feel despair? Did they worry they'd be there forever? Jeremiah had told them, or God had told them through Jeremiah, that I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back home. 
The scripture is Jeremiah 29, 10 to 11. And it says, this is what the Lord says. You will be in Babylon for 70 years, but then I will come and do for you all the good things I have promised, and I will bring you home again. For I know the plans I have for you. Everybody knows this one. For I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good, not for disaster, to give you future, a future and a hope. Good to see you here, Chad. Glad you're feeling better. Um, Seventy years later, God caused the Persian king Cyrus to allow them to come back. So they were kind of buried in the sand, if you will, like the crabs for 70 years. Now, in Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, it says that. It says, in the first year of King Cyrus of Persia, the Lord fulfilled the prophecy he had given through Jeremiah. He stirred the heart of Cyrus to put this proclamation in writing and to send it throughout his kingdom. This is what King Cyrus of Persia says. The Lord, the God of heaven, now remember, this was a heathen king. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. He has appointed me to build him a temple at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Any of you who are his people may go to Jerusalem in Judah to rebuild this temple of the Lord, the God of Israel, who lives in Jerusalem. And may your God be with you. Wherever this Jewish remnant is found, let their neighbors contribute toward their expenses by giving them silver and gold, supplies for the journey, and livestock, as well as a voluntary offering for the temple of God in Jerusalem. So Marlene was talking this morning about when things aren't going well. And she was also talking about how, you know, you look at teachers and preachers and all that, and, and you think they've all got it together. You know, everything's going good. And as she said, and I'm here to tell you this morning, we don't all have it together. You know, we, we have problems, we have things that go wrong, we have struggles that we're in. But in, in that season of waiting, the Holy Spirit helps us develop patience. I had, a, I had a good friend in Christ who always said, Gil, don't pray for patience, because God will teach you patience if you pray for patience. Well, he does that. But he's also the hope giver, the promise keeper, and the one who controls the future. Amen. Now, Jeremiah is sometimes called the weeping prophet because of the way he grieved over the people being taken captive in Babylon. You know, he, he didn't want that to happen. Neither did God, but... People being what they are, <laughs> Jeremiah 13, uh, verse 17 says, And if you still refuse to listen, I will weep alone because of your pride. My eyes will overflow with tears because the Lord's flock will be led away into exile. Now, he's saying this before it all happened. So God is giving him these words to preach to people, and as usual, people aren't listening to him. Now, <laughs> If you're like me, the record in the Bible of the Babylonian exile is confusing. And here, here comes the history lesson, and for those of you that don't need it, I apologize. Uh, but it's what God gave me, so I'll give it to you. And since I'm concentrating mostly on Judah this morning, the southern kingdom, we will just briefly touch on Israel, the northern kingdom. As soon as the United Kingdom of Israel was divided... King Jeroboam, first king of the rebellious northern kingdom, made two calves of gold. 
And he set them up in Bethel and Dan in northern Israel. He also instituted a feast on the 15th day of the eighth month. Now, I know none of you are Jewish scholars. That, that was, that's the day of the Feast of Tabernacles. And it was to replace and imitate the Feast of Tabernacles held in Judah in the Temple of the Lord at Jerusalem. 1 Kings verse 12, 27 to 28 kind of tells us why. It says, when these people go to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices at the temple of the Lord, they will again give their allegiance to King Rehoboam of Judah. They will kill me and make him their king instead. So on the advice of his counselors, the king made two gold calves. He said to the people, it's too much trouble for you to worship in Jerusalem. Look, Israel, these are the gods who brought you out of Egypt. So, you know, he's, he's already making false gods, but he was doing it. He was afraid that if the people went to Jerusalem like they were supposed to, they'd go back to that tribe. They'd go back to that, that place, that king. And as you, as you can imagine, these golden calves didn't sit too well with God. Every king that followed, with the exception of Jehu, did similar things. So off the northern kingdom went into exile. Because why? Because they worshiped false gods. Because they didn't listen to their prophet. 2 Kings chapter 17, verses 22 and 23 says, And the people of Israel persisted in all the evil ways of Jeroboam. They did not turn from these sins until the Lord finally swept them away from his presence, just as all his prophets had warned. So Israel was ex exiled from their land to Assyria, where they remain to this day. These are the ten lost tribes of Israel. Uh, you've often heard of the lost tribes. They didn't come back. Now on to Judah. In the late 7th century BC, the kingdom of Judah was a client state of the Assyrian Empire. In the last decades of the century, Assyria was overthrown by Babylon, an Assyrian province. This is why it all gets confusing, because it's just... Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, we've all heard that name, plundered Jerusalem and its temple and took King Je Jehoiakim, his court, and other prominent citizens, including the prophet Ezekiel, back to Babylon. Jehoiakim's uncle Zedekiah was appointed king in his place. Now, what, what happened with Zedekiah? God warned Zedekiah that these people were going to spend time in Babylon. Zedekiah decided to revolt against Babylon, to which Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, returned, besieged Jerusalem, exhausted it by the sword, by famine, plague, and resulting in the city's destruction in 586 BC. He destroyed the city wall and the temple along with the houses of the most prominent citizens. King Zedekiah was blinded and taken to Babylon with many others to live out the remainder of his life. In Jeremiah 32, verses 36 to 41, it says, Now I want to say something more about this city. You have been saying it will fall to the king of Babylon through war, famine, and disease. This is what the Lord God, Lord, the God of Israel says. I will certainly bring my people back again from all the countries where I will scatter them in my fury. I will bring them back to this very city and let them live in peace and safety. 
They will be my people and I will be their God. And I will give them one heart and one purpose, to worship me forever for their own good and for the good of all their descendants. And I will make an everlasting covenant with them. I will never stop doing good for them. I will put a desire in their hearts to worship me and they will never leave me. I will find joy doing good for them and will faithfully and wholeheartedly replant them in the land. Think about that. He banished them to Babylon, 70 years. But he gave them a promise that he's going to bring them back. So this kind of brings us to the topic of the sermon. Jeremiah prophesied that scripture, and then 70 years passed. So put yourself in their place. From all historical accounts, they weren't slaves. We all think of them enslaved in Babylon. According to the historical accounts, they were free to move around. Many became merchants. But obviously, there were those that felt differently about the captivity in Babylon. Psalm 137 verses 1, and 1 to 4 say, Beside the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept as we thought of Jerusalem. We put away our harps, hanging them on the branches of poplar trees. For our captors, captors demanded a song from us. Our tormentors insisted on a joyful hymn. Sing us one of those songs of Jerusalem. But how can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a pagan land? So, so you kind of have a, a dichotomy there. You have, you have people that were thriving, and you had people that really longed for their homeland. Well, why the difference? Well, look at us today. Look at America. There's people going about their lives and living in direct opposition to God. And there are those who are crying out for Jesus to come back right now. Lord, I want you right now. Right? Many Christians are stuck. We're continually living in end time pro what I call end time prophecy mode. In effect, we're stuck in Babylon. We know what's going to happen, right? You've all read the end of the book. We know what we are against, and we think we know what God wants, but we're stuck. So what do we do right now? There's a lot of things going on in America right now. Some good, some bad, some... And, and there's a movement, and Pastor mentioned it, I think either last Sunday or last Wednesday, and I think he may do a sermon on it. It's called Christian Nationalism. I don't know how many of you have ever heard of it. There's been a book published by Andrew Torba, who is the founder of Gab, which is kind of like Facebook. Facebook for us crazy people. Um, it has some good ideas, and it has some dangerous ideas. Basically, it wants to rebuild America as a Christian nation with a parallel economy to the existing one. Now, there's nothing wrong with that idea to rebuild America as a Christian nation, right? I can see some problems. How do we discern what God wants? If you want a real thrill, search online for how does God want us to live? Now, you're going to find everything from raising chickens and pigs to seizing the good life through prosperity. How do we as Christians discern what's right? 
and I'll give you an example of how hard this is. A, a number of us went to the men's uh, conference a couple weeks ago, which, by the way, for you guys who didn't go, I recommend it. It's a great experience. There's nothing like a thousand guys screaming the top of the, off their voice uh, for two days uh, to, uh, to, to get you excited. Um, but one of the speakers was Pastor Christopher Yuan. He's a Chinese gentleman. Uh, you can look him up and read his story. It's way too long to get into here. He said something that stuck with me. And he has a very interesting past. He was a gay drug dealer. Now let that sink in for a minute. You know, we, we ask what God wants. And we, and we look at these things. In Scripture, can you find anywhere where it's, you know, America's divided. Whites against blacks. Uh, homosexuals against heterosexuals. Uh, gays, all, all this kind of stuff going on. We're, we're very divided. Where in Scripture do, does God say, be black as I am black? Where does he say, be white as I am white? Where does he say, be heterosexual as I am heterosexual? Where does he say, be homosexual as I am homosexual? What does he say? Louder. He says, be holy as I am holy. Two prominent places in strict scripture say that. Leviticus 19.2 says, give the following instructions to the entire community of Israel. You must be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. 1 Peter 1.6 reiterates that. It says, for the scriptures say, you must be holy because I am holy. Well, boy, that puts a new light on those of us that are stuck in Babylon, right? Be holy as I am holy. What about abortion? Be holy as I am holy. What about politics? Be holy as I am holy. You see where I'm going with this, right? What about jobs, our jobs, our businesses, our dealings with people? Be holy. How does that change our lives? If we're to be holy as God is holy. Look at all the things that are going on in America today. You know, I, I'm a conservative guy, moderate conservative. What, do I, what are the things that I think and the thoughts that I have when I look at all this stuff? How do I align that with be holy as God is holy? We're not going to change things just by being holy, are we? Or are we? We need to be holy, but we need to look at Jesus' teachings. Everything Christ laid on his disciples was about going and doing, right? Matthew 28, 18 to 20. Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Church, how much authority does Satan have? Zero. Christ has all authority. Keep that in mind, because I think we forget that. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations. 
baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. What did Marlene say in Sunday school this morning? God's always with us. When those hard times come, when those heartaches come, God is with us. When your kids don't visit you, when your grandkids don't visit you. Now, let's look at the next verse. John 14, 12. I tell you the truth, anyone who believes in me will do the same works I have done and even greater works because I am going to be with the Father. Now, you can have all the theological discussion about that that you want. But I'm a pretty literal guy being an engineer, right, Kurt? Engineers are very literal people, sometimes to a fault. <laughs> he said, anyone who believes in me will do the same works I have done and even greater works because I am going to be with the Father. What, what's this verse about? Well, he's describing normal Christianity, right? It's a promise to all believers. That's kind of astonishing. There's no exclusion if you're a Christian. You shouldn't think, oh, this is for pastors or veteran Christians or highly spiritual, mature Christians or professional Christians. There are those, by the way, professional Christians. Uh, or missionaries or elders or evangelists or highly gifted Christians. The text says what? Whoever believes in me. Believers, pure and simple, will do the works I do. We've seen this exact phrase before. Jesus has used this phrase before. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Whoever believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. Whoever believes in me will not remain in darkness. In other words, all this is normal Christianity. This is what it means to be a Christian. Believing on Jesus is what unites you to him for how long? For eternity. So when it says whoever believes in Jesus will do this or do that, it's describing normal Christian life. This is how we're supposed to live. Christ says, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. We are children of that authority, right? Yeah, power of attorney. How many of you know what power of attorney is? Yeah, Christ Jesus gave us that power of eternity in the things that he said. It's what it means to be a Christian. Believing on Jesus is what unites to you to him for eternal life. So when it says whoever believes in Jesus will do this or that, it's describing the normal Christian life you're supposed to have. The promise in verse 12 is not made to the apostles alone, but to all who believe. Romans 12, 11 to 13 says, Never be lazy, but work hard and serve the Lord enthusiastically. Rejoice in our confident hope. Be patient in trouble and keep on praying. When God's people are in need, be ready to help them. Always be eager to practice hospitality. Now, let me tell you, that's one of the things that my wife and I loved about this church. Everybody was enthusiastic. 
everybody was hospitable, everybody was family. Who's the little blue guy with big ears in the cartoon? He says, Ohana means family. Remember him? 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Normal Christianity, right? 1 Corinthians 15.58 says, So my dear brothers and sisters, be strong and immovable. Always work enthusiastically for the Lord, for you know that nothing you do for the Lord is ever useless. Now that's an important scripture. Because sometimes I think when we're doing stuff here in church, we, we kind of plod through it and we say, why am I here, Lord? Why am I doing this? Why am I doing the same thing over and over again? Well, because I'm a Christian. Hebrews 12.1 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight, that slows us down, especially the sins that so easily trips us up, and let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. Now that's only a couple scriptures. But do they sound like instructions to sit on our butts and wait for Jesus to return? They don't, do they? Not to me at least, it doesn't. Yet, I think that's what many churches seem to be doing. The philosophy seems to be, well, it's gotten bad. It's going to get worse, but cheer up, the end is near. So endure to the end, but don't do anything. Now, that sounds good, but that's nothing but a lie from the enemy. Jesus taught us to be fighters, but to do it with love. Now, now that... I'm a guy that can be difficult sometimes. Sometimes, what does pastor say? You want to be God's right arm extended. Now, how in the world do you fight someone without engaging in the battle? I mean, you've you got to engage sometimes, right? Every one of us, or every Christian, I should say, knows this scripture. Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 16. Some of you can probably recite it. A final word, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on all of God's armor so that you will be able to stand firm against all strategies of the devil. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, against, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. Therefore, put on every piece of God's armor so you will be able to resist the enemy in the time of evil. Then after the battle, you will, be you will be standing firm. Stand your ground, putting on the belt of truth and the body armor of God's righteousness. For shoes, put on the peace that comes from the good news so that you will be fully prepared. In addition to all of these, hold up the shield of faith to stop the fiery arrows of the devil. Put on salvation as your helmet and take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So how many pieces of armor are there? Six. No. And I see you looking at me. There's seven. Look at Ephesians 6, 18 to 20. Pray in the Spirit at all times and on every occasion. 
Stay alert and be persistent in your prayers for all believers everywhere. And pray for me too. Ask God to give me the right words so I can boldly explain God's mysterious plan that the good news is for Jews and Gentiles alike. I am in chains now, still preaching this message. It's God's ambassador. So pray that I will keep on speaking boldly for him as I should. Prayer is the seventh piece of armor. That was Paul. You know the story, Paul chained between two guards? Who's really the prisoner? Because Paul has an audience there that can't get away from him. It's the most valuable weapon we have as Christians. Everything that occurs in, the, in this physical world that we experience is directly connected to this struggle taking place in the invisible spiritual world. You have trouble believing that? I do sometimes. Let me help you. How many of you remember Lois Perry? Lois Perry was a force to be reckoned with, right? God bless her. Wonderful lady, full of the Spirit. If, if, if Lois prayed for you, let me tell you, you were prayed for. Kind of like Dick. Dick, I don't know too many people that can pray like Dick and Lois. Um, a few years ago, before she passed away, she came up to me after church and she hands me a book that she had read. And she says, you're an engineer. I love that. Uh, she says, you're an engineer. This will probably make more sense to you than it did to me. The book's title, now Lois Perry read this book. I want you all to keep that in your head. The Story of Quantum Physics, How Science Discovered God. It's an interesting book. Yes, it's boring. I'm not going to give you all the details because your eyes will glaze over and you'll fall asleep. But I will tell you that there's a very real world that we can't see that affects everything in this world. Uh, you know, I'll, get, I'll give you an example that, that's, in, that's in that book and, and it relates to the Bible. You remember God saying, you cannot look upon my face. He showed him his back. Physics has no application in, in the quantum world. And, and there's, a, there's a couple of theories out there that if you observe something in the quantum world, it changes. You can't look at my face. I'll show you my back. How many of you know uh, Tony Evans? You know Tony Evans? He pastors a pretty big church. His daughter Priscilla said something that I'm, that I'm going to quote here. She was in an interview. She says, everything that occurs in the visible physical world is correct, directly connected to the wrestling match being waged in the invisible spiritual world. The effects of the war going on in the unseen world reveal themselves in our strained and damaged relationships, emotional instability, mental fatigue. We were talking about that in Sunday school. Uh, physical exhaustion, and, men, and that too and many other areas of life. Marlene and I were talking this morning about physical exhaustion. I, I changed the oil in my car this, yesterday. Now, normally I could change the, car, the oil in my car, mow the lawn, do about four other things in the day. Yesterday, I changed the oil in my car. I came back in, I sat down with my wife, and I said, I'm exhausted. 
She says, Gil, you're 73 years old. You're trying to do too much. I said, no, I can't be old age because I'm a guy, right? So many of us feel pinned down by anger, unforgiveness, pride, and comparisons of insecurity, discord, fear. The list goes on. But the overarching primary nemesis beyond, behind all these outcomes is, and you have an adversary that goes around like a roaring lion, it's Satan, right? So we, we've come pretty far down this rabbit hole to reach some kind of conclusion. If you look at the world around you, it's riddled with greed, pornography, attacks on our children, attacks on our freedom, attacks on the family, attacks on Christianity, attacks on being male or female, and a host of other things, and you can't help but feel discouraged. How do you physically push back or go on the attack and still do it in love? Well, here's some ideas. Pray. I like the way one pastor puts it. He says, be raw, frank, and real with God. You know, our pastor often says that. You know, you can yell at God. His shoulders are pretty broad. He can take it. And it's not like he doesn't already know what you're thinking. I've done that a lot, especially since Marion got sick. You know, it's, it's, it can get pretty frustrating for those of you who have taken care of somebody who's very sick. Our general superintendent, Doug Clay, and I know most of you don't know him, but he's the general superintendent of the Assemblies of God. He put out a letter this week in the AG Weekly newspaper, or newsletter, I should say. It's, it comes online. You can, you can subscribe to it. It's not just for pastors. Uh, it's at uh, www.ag.org, which is our national website. Click on News at the very top right in the black bar. And look for the article, then it's entitled, Children Targeted in a Moral Revolution. So what did he say to do? <laughs> Pray for the hearts of our children. Pray for the minds of our children. Pray for the souls of our children. Pray for the future of our children. He said our children are growing up in a culture that is inundating them with messages about sexuality that are untrue and damaging. Let's continue to point our children to the Bible's teaching about sexuality. Let's model for them how to love people, even those with whom we disagree. Let's stay true to the message of the gospel and stand against every form of sexual inappropriateness, upholding biblical standards without compromise. Be holy as I am holy. Let's demonstrate to our kids the power of the gospel and how it can transform people into his image. Let's stand on God's promise that says, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Stand your ground. That's number two. Refuse to back down from things you, are, you know are true and right. There's a lot of arguments out there that sound really good. And like Pastor Jeff says, pick up your Bible and compare it to Scripture. What's Scripture say about that idea or argument? Sometimes it takes a long time to find something about it. 
Don't compromise for the sake of getting along. Do it with love. That means, guys and gals, praying for the person that disagrees with you. You know, sometimes they're right. Tyler, sometimes your wife is right when she disagrees with you. God, I love picking on him. <laughs> uh, you know, you won't be the youngest married couple in church for long. Um, remember, and this is important, especially in this day and age, remember that Satan is real. This stuff is real, people. When you feel the spirit fall on the platform, that's real. That's not, that's not emotional Christians. The attacks are real. The battle is real. There are things that exist that we can't see unless we use spiritual eyes. You know that distract that... <clears throat> Sorry. I can't speak, I can't read. You know that the distracting static last Sunday morning in worship was the enemy. We couldn't duplicate it in practice on Tuesday night. This morning we did duplicate it. We think we might know what it is. But that doesn't change the part that the enemy used that to distract us from worship. My, my very first pastor used to call it the imp in the sound system. And he always threatened to pour a bottle of oil in the sound system to which us engineers would go, oh, I don't think that's such a good idea. So we never let him do it, but he was serious. Number four, help one another. Be there for people and not just for Christians. And I can't say that often enough, not just for Christians. So many people have gotten saved because a Christian has done thing, nice things for them over and over again without expecting anything in return. You know, that neighbor that throws his leaves over the fence in your yard. Remember Les? Les Kaufman? He had a war going on with his neighbors. Ah, number five, remember the Great Commission. Jesus said, go and do, not sit and wait. So we took a long way around this morning. So if you take nothing else with you, take the last five points. And remember, it isn't our job to sit and wait until Jesus returns. There isn't a thing. And, and if you can find something in his teaching that says that, let me know. Because I looked diligently and I couldn't find it. You know, there's things that say sit and wait for this or that. He told the disciples, you stay in Jerusalem for 50 days until the Spirit falls on you. So, wow. You know, when, when I timed this out, it took a lot longer than this. So if I forgot something, I apologize to you, but I'm going to let you go. Pastor Jeff will never forgive me. And he'll take an extra 20 minutes next week, trust me. But I thank you. I thank you for listening to me. I thank you for putting up with me. As my wife says, you're not the easiest person to get along with, Gil. And I'm not. She can tell you stories. You have to come to the house, though, because she can't come here. As much as she'd like to, she can't come here. Oh, Lord, what a glorious day you've made for us. And we thank you for it, Lord. We praise you for it. 
we just pour out our hearts to you, Lord, because you love us. And your promises are real and they stand. They don't go away. They don't fade out like some things do. Lord, we ask that you make us aware of those promises in the coming week. Let us be everyday Christians. Let us go out and do your work, Lord. Spread your word, spread your gospel with love. And let us stand for something that people see us, Lord. And understand that we're standing for the right things. Lord, we love you. Be with us this week. Guide and be with us this week. Guide and protect us. And I just thank you, Lord, for who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.